Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 30th, 2018, and this is episode 2336 of the Survival Podcast. November 30th. What does that mean? What day is November 30th? It's the last day of the second to the last month of the year. Tomorrow's December 1st. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. The clock ticks for us all. Time is not a sliding scale. It is a, it is a absolute factor in your life. We teach here at the Survival Podcast, and I've taught for over 10 years, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, independence, and personal liberty. We teach those four pillars because they are the number one way to know if you are advancing your life or if life is advancing upon you. Either you are working to increase those four key areas of your life. And if you are, you are creating greater freedom for yourself in all walks of life. Or you're ignoring them, floating mindlessly like a leaf upon the wind. And life is pushing you backward in all four areas. There is no third option. Remember that as we turn a corner to the last month in 2018, and soon you'll be trying to remember to write the date 19. Think about that, especially some of you guys that remember, let's say, kind of fumbling with going from 89 to 90 or 84 to 85, right? It's amazing when I sit back and think about the fact that we're a year away, a year and a month away from 2020. And, you know, it's good to have things to look forward to, and we're not going to get political at all today, so I'll just say I am making a Jack prediction, a Jack Stradamus prediction right now that 2020 will be the year of the greatest ass-clown circus that we have ever seen. Of course, the TV will tell you it is, once again, once again, yes, once again, the most important election in our lifetimes. Anyway, with that, let's tell you what we're going to talk about today. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. So it is time for the Expert Council Q&A show. I've got a, a great group of the Expert Council. As of yesterday... I had two segments for today's show, and that was it. It turned out I had one, because one was from Doc Bones, and I realized this morning that it was on kidney stones. So, so yesterday I had one expert council segment, and a lot of piking going on. So I sent you know one of those kind of anti-piking emails to the council. It was like shaking a tree, and you think there's maybe a couple pieces of ripe fruit up there, and it's really a nut tree. And all those nuts are ready to fall, and all of a sudden you start getting just knocked in the head. So I ended up with like enough. I could do two and a half shows with the content. So I got a great diversity, and I got a lot of good stuff coming next week. And I'll I'll keep shaking the piker tree, and we'll kind of try to finish the year strong. That said, I could use more questions for the expert council. Some of the stuff 
that I got from expert counsel's backlog of questions they piked on. Uh, some of the stuff that I have is, is expert counsel members without questions um, creating segments for you, which I think is a great thing. I, I love having them do that, um, but some of them are good at it, and some of them kind of need a, a push in the right direction. So think about all these wonderful people we have available to us and send us your questions. Uh, and expert council members, if you're listening today and you don't get a lot of questions, I want to give you a little life lesson from the military. When I was in the Army, specifically in AIT, I had a really great drill sergeant, uh, Drill Sergeant Lyons. Um, I don't want to sound sexist, but my, my opinion generally was that most women drill sergeants weren't very good. They just weren't. Drill Sergeant Lyons was a female, and she was very, very good at her job. She was a good leader. Uh, we were lucky to have her. She also was uh, E6, which is a, a, you know, a, a staff sergeant, at the uh, earliest possible date of promotion and could max the male's PT test, max the male PT test requirements. She's a pretty awesome lady. But um, she, was, she was still a hard-ass. She was a drill sergeant and a good drill sergeant. And uh, I remember her telling us one day, men, I noticed that some of you don't get much mail. And the reason you don't get much mail, I'm going to go out on a limb, it says because you don't send much mail. Now, if you don't care, that's not a problem. But if you'd like to get some mail, send some mail. The more mail you send, the more mail you'll get. To those of you on the pikers list, the more questions you answer, the more questions you will get. Anyway, here's what we got today. Stephen Harris. How Harris was wrong on solar. Yes, a confession. And a acknowledgement to Sean Mills, one of our newest expert council members, and a warm welcome to him, to the expert council from the Harris himself. By the way, we don't have a lot of questions for Harris right now. You want to taunt the Harris? It's a good time to do it. End of the year. Get him all fired up. Speaking of Sean Mills, though, jump packs for emergency vehicle starting. Sean Mills on that one. And then Michael Jordan, your pocket beekeeper and mead maker, uh, he is going to give us the procedures for end-of-the-year beekeeping. you got bees. It's getting cold outside. It's December, last month of the year. What should you be doing to wrap up your year and getting your bees prepped to get through winter? Come on strong in the spring. Michael will tell us. Butchering pastured poultry from Darby Simpson. The health benefits of fermented foods from Chef Keith Snow. Preventing Kidnapping, extremely important segment from Dan Oman. And to swale or not to swale, that is the question for me, myself, and I, Jack. And we'll play with Shakespeare a little bit. I don't really know what I'm going to say yet, but I looked up the Hamlet soliloquy, to be or not to be. I memorized like the first five or six lines of it. And I'm going to try not to embarrass myself and recite some Shakespeare modified to answer the question, to swell or not to swell. And then we'll actually dig into that question and see what it means. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's take a look at this year in history. Not this year in history, this day in history. You know, it's going to be time for this year in history soon, isn't it? You know, maybe January 1st we should do this year. January 2nd probably won't come back. Um is an examination of 2018. Who knows? Maybe we'll do that. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, but let's go back to a different year. How about the year 1835 on this day of November 30th? 
Mark Twain is born, except he's not born as Mark Twain. He's born as Samuel Clemens, later known as Mark Twain, is born in Florida, Missouri, on this day in 1835. What, what, what? Florida, Missouri? Yeah, Florida is a, is a town in Missouri, believe it or not. Clemens was apprenticed to a printer at the age of 13. He later worked for his older brother, who established the Hannibal Journal. In 1857, the Keokuk Daily Post commissioned him to write a series of comic travel letters, but after writing five, he decided to become a steamboat captain instead. He signed on as a pilot's apprentice in 1857, received his pilot's license in 1859 when he was 23. Clemens piloted a boat for two years until the Civil War halted steamboat traffic. During his time as a pilot, he picked up the term Mark Twain. Here's what I thought would be interesting for you guys to know where that name came from. Mark Twain was a boatman's call, noting that the river was only two fathoms deep, the minimum depth for safe navigation. So Mark, like to take notice of or to take a point of, Twain, two. Mark, that's where the name came from. I thought it was kind of cool. When Clemens returned to writing in 1861, working for the Virginia City Territorial Enterprise, he wrote a humorous travel letter signed by Mark Twain and continued to use the pseudonym for nearly 50 years. It goes on with some other stuff about Mark Twain. I thought it would be a good day to celebrate Mr. Twain's birthday with some of my favorite quotes from Mark Twain that are really great lessons in life and sometimes just Mark's cool humor that he had. One, how about this? The report of my death was an exaggeration. Uh, that's been used so many times by so many people since. The secret of getting ahead is getting started. We say in our time, what? Get shit done. Next, kindness is a language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. Good words for life. And then I love this one. Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. I absolutely love that one. Then the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. Yeah, when you find out that life's purpose, man, that is probably the most important day of your life other than the one you were born in. Whensoever you find yourself on the side of the majority... It is time to pause and reflect. You notice he doesn't say that you're wrong. He just says maybe you should think about it. Make sure you're right. I have never let schooling interfere with my education. Words I have lived my life by, by the way. Truth is stranger than fiction, but it's because fiction is obliged to stick to the possibilities and truth isn't. Oh, I love that one. If you tell the truth... You don't have to remember anything. And probably one of the most famous quotes of all time from Mr. Twain that I think most people that say it all the time have no idea it's where it came from. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. And then my favorite quote by Mark Twain, It's not what you don't know that hurts you. It's what you think you know that just ain't so. On this day... In 18, yeah, in 1825, Mark Twain was born and graced us for all those years that he was with us with his wisdom. He died in 1910. With that, 
Let's go ahead and uh, get into your uh, questions for the expert counsel today. Uh, this one's really not a question. It's an acknowledgement from Stephen Harris that some of his past views on solar, well, they're just wrong. Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris for the expert counsel calling in to answer your question. Sorry, I've been gone for a while. I had to take a little sabbatical and a little breather. But I am back here to take care of you, and I'm going to tell you today I was wrong. I was so wrong. I was desperately wrong. I told you something wrong for like two, three years at least, and I'm going to correct that today. But first, I want to give a very big shout-out and warm greeting to the new expert council member, Sean Mills. In fact, he's the one who proved I was wrong. Sean, whereas I do have a great deal of knowledge about solar and PV and batteries and inverters and everything. I've done a lot of it. I've made them many times for decades, but Sean lives it. Sean lives off-grid solar 24-7 on a 24-7 basis, 365. That's his only source of power. And he is absolutely wonderfully articulate, wonderful at answering questions. I've interacted with him a lot on the Facebook forum, the TSB Facebook forum. And I can't think of a better person to have on the expert council. In fact, if you have an off-grid question, like you really want to go full-time solar off-grid and a few other things, please send in that expert question to Sean Mills. You still have me for, like, different flavors of battery technology, anything science, anything chemistry, small solar systems. I might do a tag team with Sean or something. Don't know, okay? Send a one, send a both, whatever you want, uh, but definitely full-time off-grid stuff. Sean is going to have a much better and probably superior perspective to me about living off-grid full-time. So, welcome, Sean. Please send those questions to him. Now, I was wrong. And guess who proved me wrong? And I am here to admit it. And I want to correct it instantaneously. Sean, I always told you, look, you're never going to get your money back on solar panels. And, well, it, it, that's true. And underneath the circumstances of which I deal, that is true. But, see, the, despite the price drop, it's a long story, but China has too much electricity, so they're trying to change electricity in the dollars by making solar panels incredibly electrically intensive, making aluminum, making magnesium, making other chemicals, crypto mining. They're trying to burn as much electricity as they can to get hard currency in. So thus we're getting a dumping of solar panels, and that's why we have tariffs, and you know that's why other com countries are competing and everything else. That's why you have cheap solar panels. Don't be fooled, okay? <laughs> That's the reason we have cheap solar panels and a few other things, but it's not because of severe advancements in solar panels. You're never going to get your energy out of it as long as you're dealing with a silicon panel. We switched to a different chemistry like cupric oxide, which is on the fringe. And we're talking about serious return on investment because we're not growing silicone. We're just making cupric oxide. So um, one of the things you've heard me say is uh, solar, pan solar electric is the most expensive type of electric power you'll ever get. And there's only thing, one, more thing, one thing more expensive than solar power, and that is no power. And Sean, correct, you know, uh, absolutely correctly corrected me and it's like crap i was wrong and uh what it is is if let's say you really want to go and get your own property for a homestead that's important to you that's your dream that's your life now if you go to get a piece of property and it's twenty thousand dollars for that piece of property 
off-grid, or 30,000 or 40,000. And it, for the same type and size of property that is still rural but has electric service, like two lines running down the poles to you type of electric service, you know, um, your remote, and that piece of property is $100,000. If you just saved eighty, sixty, fifty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 on a piece of property because it's completely off-grid, Either it's got a well or you got to dig a well, you got septic, and you got no electricity, uh, and you save the money. Then if you have bought that cheaper piece of property, which is probably what you wanted more remote anyways, then you have instantaneously paid for your solar system to go in your house. Now, solar system for a home could be... Depending how you buy your panels, uh, Sean Mills and I are a huge fan of Sun Elect, S-U-N-E-L-E-C.com. It's the only place I would really buy solar panels, especially for any size of wattage of solar panels. But um, if you, uh, you know, your solar panel system could start at a thousand, more realistically, five thousand for a, a more complete whole house system with superior batteries. Um, it's, you're looking ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, but I mean, Sean can help you with the sizing of the panels for the house. Remember, you don't size the panels to the house, you size the house to the panels. And, you know, battery section, do you want roll serrette? Do you want to, you know, try lithium iron phosphate that is on the edge of economically, you know, coming out right now? Uh, these are all really good questions, but the point is, I was wrong. If you get that money, monetary savings and getting the piece of property off-grid rather than on-grid, you will instantaneously pay for your solar system. And you can have still have a generator. It can run off of propane. It can run off gasoline. It can run off of diesel. You'll have extra finances to buy this extra type of stuff. So... Okay, guys, that's how Steve Harris was wrong, and I am going to always articulate this correction uh, in the future so that you understand the context of the viability and the financial implications of solar. It takes a little bit of math to make sure you're doing it right, but you can do it right, especially with the lower price panels and the surplus panels that at Sun Elect and everything else. You can do a really good job. I look forward to answering your questions. I look forward to seeing the questions you're going to send Sean and what he has to say. Like I said, he lives at 24-7. I've just done it a bunch of times. There is a big difference in separation between those two things. Thank you. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel. If you want to see my stuff, Stephen1234.com. Talk to you guys later. Oh, and next week, it's going to be another I was wrong about something else, too. I'll see you guys. So after that, let's hear from Sean on um, emergency uh, starter packs. These are things that um, I've had you know, various opinions on over the years, and I've always found them to be useful. But they've actually gotten a lot smaller and a lot better over the years. And I think that as long as you understand their limitations, they're a really great emergency prep for your vehicle. Uh, we had a question recently about this. I kicked it over to Sean. Sean? What say you? Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar. And I've got an expert council question that's related to jump starter battery packs for vehicles. Uh, now, when this question was initially sent in, it was sent in for Stephen Harris or Charles Sandville. Uh, but Jack asked me to take a look at it just because it kind of falls into the realm of uh, portable electricity that I deal with. 
Um, so here's the question. Can you recommend any of the small jumpstart packs that have come out recently? I have been seeing the small jumpstart battery packs for vehicles. These aren't much larger than the USB cell phone battery backups and can often be used for that also. They seem too good to be true and uh, to be able to jumpstart a vehicle with such a small battery. Are they? Specifically, I would like one that can start a 4.2 liter six-cylinder truck. Well, let's first talk about what these are and what they're required to do. The amperage of a battery is really what we're concerned about here. And amperage is the uh, the strength of current. And it's really a function of how much surface area the electrodes within a battery have. So let's talk about what you need to start a gas engine. Um, for This is just information that I've researched online. Uh, I found that you need 150 to 200 amps for a four-cylinder, 200 to 250 amps for a six-cylinder, and uh, 250 to 300 amps for an eight-cylinder. Those are gas engines. The requirements for diesel engines are much higher. And I'm going to stay away from those right now uh, just because the, the question was specifically asked about a gasoline uh, engine. Uh, so now there's definitely devices on the market that will deliver 300 or more amps for up to 30 seconds, which would be more than enough to start any gas engine. Uh, the problem with these devices when you're evaluating them is that they're typically only rated in max amps, which doesn't really directly translate to cold cranking amps. Uh, it takes more amperage to turn a cold engine over than it does to turn an engine over in the middle of summer. Um, and so cold cranking amps, that's why that's what, if you buy, if you buy a battery for your vehicle, cold cranking amps is one of the things on there. And, uh, I believe it is the number of amps that the battery can put out at negative 18 degrees at a minimum of 7.2 volts. That's what the, that amperage rating is for. So, uh, most of the technical data that I've read says that they will, those battery packs will give you about 30% of the max rating as cold cranking amps. Uh, so that means you need at least 900 amps of rating, uh, max uh, amperage, for that six-cylinder truck. Because if we take 30% of 900 amps, we're left with 270 amps. That's right in the middle of our 250 to 300. Uh, or rather, that's a more than the 200 to 250 we need for a six-cylinder. And right in the middle of the 250 to 300 we need for an eight-cylinder. Um I've done a lot of research on these battery packs, and there's tons of reviews on them. There's tons of customer videos. There's tons of third-party videos of people running these things through diagnostic tests to see if they really put out what they're supposed to. And I'm uh, convinced that that these things work. Um, The technology is several years old. I started seeing some really in-depth reviews of these things coming out around 2016. And, um, you know, like I said, the consensus is that they work as advertised. Um, I can tell you that all of the big name uh, devices like this on the Internet have got well over a thousand views. Some of them over three or reviews, some of them well over three thousand reviews. And I went through them. Uh, I'm not saying I read all 3,000 reviews, but I went through quite a few of them. I searched for some specific terms like cold and winter. Uh, and realistically, the biggest area uh, that it turned out that these things did not work was when it's a big engine and it's really cold. 
And a lot of times it was when the battery pack was left in the vehicle while the vehicle was really cold. Uh, so if you're going to go to one of these things, you might consider if you live in an area where it's just ridiculously cold, don't store the battery pack in the vehicle. Maybe store it in, in the house. And if you're going to go for a trip, take it out and, and put it in the vehicle. Um, I can tell you, I, I after doing this research, I'm going to buy at least one of these, if not two. Uh, there's one called the Beat It, B-E-T-I-T, G18 Pro 2000 amp uh, and 21,000 milliamp hour uh, on Amazon for $89.99. I'm going to send the link to that uh, to Jack. And Beat It has several other very highly rated um, devices out there, you know, in the 600 to 1000 uh, amp range. And this 2000 amp is kind of their newest version. And that, uh, the 2000 amp version is only about $25 more than the 1000 amp version. So for me, uh, it makes sense. And there's guys on there that have said that they are starting up 7.4 liter diesels with that 2000 amp version. Um, so I, I'm, like I said, I'm going to buy at least one of these. Um, they, uh, there, there have been some reviews on people, uh, that have said that they got it and the, and the, uh, part that you plug into the pack, uh, that in, then goes to the battery terminals didn't go in right. Uh, so when you get this thing, I would test it out immediately and I'd make sure that I've, I've charged it properly the first time. A lot of these things have a specific process the first time. Um, I can tell you a manufacturer isn't going to go out of their way to put, uh, the kind of detail they need or they are putting in on an initial charge unless that's important. Uh, so do it right the first time. Keep it topped off as much as possible. Um, in the non-extremely cold areas of the country or even in the summertime in those areas, it might not be a bad idea to leave it plugged in, in the car and then to charge your other items off of it. Uh, so you could leave it plugged into the uh, uh, the cigarette lighter adapter and then with the built-in USB, just charge your phone and whatever else off of that. Um, because it's also, you know, again, acts as a 21,000 milliamp hour, um, uh, charger for, for USB devices. But in terms of its ability to, um, to crank cars, the math works and there's enough people out there that have used them now that say that they work as advertised. I don't think you're going to have a problem moving forward with those. Well, Hey, with that being said, uh, thanks Jack for, for scooting this question over my way. I, I really enjoyed kind of going through and, and um and and doing the research on this one because it's not something that I just inherently had knowledge about but uh but it's going to lead me to making a purchase I can tell you that um if you guys have any other questions you can send them uh to Jack uh, I'm really enjoying answering these things for you guys and if there's any follow up or anything that you need from me you can reach me at Sean S H A W N at hackmyseller.com or post on the blog or on the Facebook group. Uh, I'm on there all the time. Looking forward to talking to you guys. Thanks. Next up, Michael Jordan's going to talk to us if we're keeping bees about what we need to be doing with our bees at the end of the year. I think there's a lot of value here. One, you've got a, a guy that's been doing this his whole life and, and telling you what he does and how he does it in a pretty extreme climate being Wyoming. Um, so that's, that's, you know, if you're a beekeeper, I think you can learn from this. Um, if you're not a beekeeper, I think it's just interesting to understand what goes into taking care of bees, and then you understand why the guy down the road wants eight bucks a pound for his honey when you can buy garbage at the store for three bucks. 
another thing, though, I think that's valuable here with having Michael on is a lot of people, you know, fancy the idea of being a beekeeper. And they think it's pretty much you just put bees in a box and just stand back and once a year take honey out of the box. There's a lot of husbandry in keeping a bee. A bee is not meant to live in a box. Bees don't live in boxes in nature. Bees, specifically honeybees, the kind we keep for honey, in nature they generally, like you find them going into trees and stuff like that, but where they're native, they build huge hanging combs from open trees, not boxed in or caged in at all. So when you put a bee in a box, you take responsibility for that bee and the you know thousands upon thousands of other bees that are in there with that, that bee. And uh, when we come around this time of year, there's things we have to do for them. Michael, tell us what they are. Hello, and many blessings to you. I'm Michael Jordan, a bee-friendly company located in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. Today we're talking about the end. The end of the year, and what we can be doing with the bees and their apiary, the equipment pulled and next year's growth, and the products that we've harvested from the end of the year. I hope that your bee experience was a good one. And not, I know that not everyone made it with every hive. We do our best and we try to mend from our errors. We all have losses. Hopefully we didn't lose everything on our first year. So let's get started and let's look at the bees, the apiary, the equipment, the products, and what we're going to do. Your bees should be packed down so they can keep warm. Food and fauna supplies should be made so they don't run out in the Ides of March. Finish off your pest treatments, mouse guards, and robbing screens. Wrap your hives up in the locations that are needed for windbreaks to help them when they need heat. Try to get an open door on the top of the hive to help with moisture and ventilation. And to cover the doors. When they get snowed on them, you want something on the top that allows the bees to get out. Your apron should start to have windbreaks at it. Place some snow fence or some pallets up around your hives to keep the wind from pounding on the hive. The wind makes the cold air, and the cold air is killer for the bees on a nice day when they can go out and, let's face it, have a drink of water and poop. Set up feeders 10 feet away from the hive with water. On nice days, you can see the water not have ice. You'll also see the bees out drinking from them. Give them some help. Give them some love. Hey, your pulled equipment? Now's a good time to scrape it down. Treat them with vinegar and water, with some salt and mineral additive. This will help keep wax moth out, and when your bees are back in those boxes and frames, they'll have some mineral to keep them up and to help them grow. Paint and store the boxes in a good location. Make sure you check all your boxes for cracks, breaks, splits. Do some good repairs. Clean up all your spinners, tools, and clothing. Get those rips stitched up. We don't want the bees inside that suit that you're wearing. Try to make a good appearance on your hives. This is a good time to build equipment. Getting your new frames together, pulling out the foundations from the old and putting new foundations in. This is the greatest time to do that when you're down, staying inside on the cold winter months. Hey, we have some honey, wax, and if we prepped at all, maybe we had some propolis storage. With honey, let's make some creamed honeys this time. Or let's try to fill our own honey sticks. Hey, we can even try something new and extra like creating baklava, which is great for the season table. Or food fairs at $2.50 a piece. 
This is a great time to try out some wax products, making candles and lip balms and lotions. But man, really look at making some wood polishes. They seem to be coming out at bigger quantities, and people are really looking for them. You know, it is gift season, and it's just around the corner. And honey is the king product, with wax products, with wax products looking right behind them. Looking, look for making some propolis tinctures. Propolis tinctures is something big that's coming out with people's stomachs and digestive tracts, also helping with people's autoimmune system. Look into making propolis tinctures. This is a great thing to do, and it also helps you start collecting propolis for other measures. Remember, the season is over for only the tax man, not for you and your bees. Hey, I'm Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer. Telling you to get your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Get it from a small college cottage company for a better product and for someone that's starting out to help them along. Hey, and help your fellow man. Because one day, you're going to need help too. Hey, thanks to all you enjoyed the mead that Jack's 10-year. Your hugs and replies made me go over the moon. I'm really glad you guys enjoyed my fabulous drinks. Have a blessed day. Next up, I have a question for Darby Simpson on butchering pastured poultry. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of the TSP Expert Council calling in to answer another question. And this week, I've got one from Zach in Michigan. And his question is, is it worth the extra money to use an USDA facility for poultry processing versus a state-inspected facility? Uh, his details are that it, he's having a really difficult time finding a USDA inspected facility, you know, uh, near his home in the state of Michigan. The closest one he can find is actually an hour and a half away, um, which that's how far away I drive to my state inspected facility. So I don't think that's terribly far. Um, uh, but they charge $4.50 per bird, and that's in a shrink wrap bag. Now, he does have some other options nearby that are only 2 to $3 per chicken, but it's a, it's a uh, uh, certified by the state. And he's really wanting to know, should he spend the extra money to go with the USDA facility? Does having a USDA facility uh, process his birds open up his selling options? And, Zach, I'll answer the last question first. Does this open up your selling options? It absolutely does. Oh, but only really if you want to sell across state lines. Now, you'll have to uh, check with your Board of Animal Health, Department of Weights and Measures, uh, what other you know government agencies in the state of Michigan dictate you know where and how you can sell poultry based on how they've been processed. You'll also want to find out what labeling requirements there are. Um, but you know, in the state of Indiana, uh, we can actually sell poultry that's butchered on farm anywhere in the state of Indiana. Uh, now, that wasn't always the case. Uh, used to, back when I started, it had to be done in a state-inspected facility. Um, that was good enough for you know selling anywhere in the state, restaurants, stores, direct consumer, what have you. Um, so you're going to want to check and see what the regulations are. But in terms of, you know, is it worth the extra money Again, only if you want to sell across state lines. I'm assuming you don't have to have a USDA-inspected bird. 
uh, to sell within the state of Michigan. So if you're wanting to direct sell and direct sell within state lines, you'd be absolutely silly to use this USDA facility that's, number one, really far away for you compared to the state facility. Number two is using a shrink wrap bag. I, look, shrink wrap's not awful, um, in fact, you know, uh, uh, grass-fed life, we've got a poultry processing course, and um, Ben uh, Grimes, who uh, helped us put that course together, actually says, you know, when you're first starting out, using a shrink wrap bag is completely fine. Um, you know, it beats the heck out of using a Ziploc bag. Um, but when we're talking about professional butchering, I want to see vacuum sealed. I want to see high quality vacuum sealed birds. And uh, you didn't mention if the state inspected facility offered vacuum sealed bags. Um, but, you know, the third thing is they're, they're a fraction of the cost. And if, if they're a fraction of the cost, they're closer and they've got vacuum sealed bags and you don't want to sell outside of state lines, there's absolutely no reason to use this USDA uh, facility, in in my opinion, um, you know, we've raised and sold somewhere between twenty five and thirty thousand birds in in the last ten years. Uh, we've always used a state inspected facility, and they've always been vacuum sealed, and it's always served us very well. So, in this case, I, I think this is you know uh, pretty slam dunk. Now, one thing uh, that you didn't address here, you know, how are you wanting to sell your birds? Are you wanting to sell you know, whole chickens, or are you wanting to uh, sell cut-up chickens? Uh, you did send me, you know, uh, a list of, you know, what some options are here in, in terms of, you know, the, the cutting options and things of that nature, uh, getting the, uh, you know, the giblets back, uh, the neck, the feet, all that good stuff. Um, if you're wanting to part your birds out, and that's, that's a really a whole other discussion, Zach, but if you're wanting to go that route and one facility offers it, you know, if the USDA facility offers it and the state inspector facility doesn't, that can maybe change the conversation a little bit. I don't know where you're at in your business. I don't know how many birds you're producing. I don't know if you're trying to go from, you know, a side hustle to a full-time farming gig. Um, that That's all going to come into play there. Uh, so that's something you would have to think about. I, I think really based on the information you gave me, that's really uh, the only unknown that could change my response to this. But based on what you told me, I'd say go with the state inspected facility. It's closer, it's cheaper, um, and hopefully they're using vacuum sealed bags. And and hopefully they'll offer to cut the birds up for you. Um, you know, you got to charge accordingly uh, as a processor to do that. But you know, something I talk a lot about in the teaching and the training I provide is how to put all that into a spreadsheet and make sure that you're coming out way ahead. You know, it, it's crazy to me that, you know, I'll have a whole chicken that's $25 and people will pass over that and, and take a 20 to $22 package of chicken breast. That's literally less than half the weight of the whole chicken, but they do it all the time um, because that's what they're used to cooking with and that's what they want to cook with. So there are ways to, you know, make some extra money, uh, pretty good extra money if you're raising enough birds and if you're direct selling like at the farmer's market and stuff. So that's all stuff to take into consideration there. Uh, but I really don't have anything else to, to add. If you want to shoot me an email, Zach, uh, for some further clarification, feel free to do that. Send it to Darby at grassfedlife.co. 
Um, and for everybody else listening to this, if, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, go out and check out Grassfed Life. Uh, it's grassfedlife.co. Tons and tons and tons of free resources out there. Um, I think we've got like 115 podcasts now. They're all on the site. There's blog articles. Uh, there's some free guides uh, that you can uh, get a hold of out there. Um, in addition to the paid resources, there's tons of, of free information. So feel free to go and check that out and uh, listen to the podcast if you get a chance. Let us know what you think. Thanks for sending this one in, Zach. If anybody else has any questions for me, feel free to shoot them over. You can email them to me again, darby at grassfedlife.co. Have a great weekend, everyone, and take care. This is how kind of I would sum that up in a real short thing that applies to any business decision. You never spend money on something in your business process unless it's going to make you more money or deliver a better product. Those are the only two times you spend more money in your process of delivering a product or a service. Either because I'm going to spend an extra dollar a unit and it's going to make me two. And that might be, like Darby said, from expanding your reach and you can sell more that way. And if that's not the case, then it's not the case. Or it will improve the quality of the product. In this situation, I don't think you're going to get a better product for your end user because the .gov federal stickers there versus the .gov state sticker. Those are that's kind of how I sum up most decisions, not all, but most decisions that involve spending money on a process or product situation in a business. Next up today, we have a segment from Chef Keith on fermented foods. Chef Keith, take it away, man. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com with a question about fermentation and more specifically probiotics. Now, I got a email. And this has been a while, and I'm sorry that I haven't gotten to this, but it's by a guy named John Smith, and that's his real name. And he comes from Kentucky, and he's wondering about um, – he's hearing all this stuff about fermented vegetables and probiotics, and he's wondering how to you know, incorporate these things into his diet. And the reason I picked this email out, I've been looking at it for a while, but I'm about to do a show on the Harvest Eating Podcast, all about fermentation and uh, probiotics. It's something that I like to talk about, and um, everybody, in my opinion, should be eating these types of foods. So um, here's a couple of ideas. Basic things that you can ferment um, would be things like cabbage. You can make sauerkraut. You can make sour pickles. You know, and It has to be in the season. You want to use Kirby cucumbers. They're not really in season this time of year. Beets are great. Um, any kind of pickled vegetables are wonderful, like carrots, green beans. Uh, you can make something called giardinera, and you usually see that packed in vinegar, but it can also be um, made using fermentation. That would be like cauliflower, peppers, garlic, carrots, green beans, all together in a salt water that eventually turns to lactic acid and that builds your fermentation. Now, in order to regularly eat these foods, and we... Um, we make sure that our children as well as mama and I are eating these things um, every day. So the list would include drinking kombucha. And there's so many great kombuchas out there on the market today. Um, I am pretty partial to one called GT Synergy, I believe, GTS Synergy. They have a lot of great flavors. Just got to keep in mind that an entire bottle of that, 
you know, probably has 16, 18 carbohydrates. If you're watching your carbs, you know, half of the bottle will be plenty, but even just a few sips of kombucha a day, yogurt and buy quality yogurts. Don't be getting ones that are, you know, silly with all the fruit in them. Something like a Faye Greek yogurt, uh, the full fat one or, or at the very least a 2%, a little yogurt is great. And you just have to avoid the ones that have too much fruit in them because it's just more sugar than anything else. But yogurt is great. Kefir, which is kind of basically like a uh, yogurt drink, but this is fermented and has quite a few beneficial bacteria. Sauerkraut, sour pickles. We keep uh, a brand of pickles in our fridge called Bubby's, and you can find it in most supermarkets in the refrigerated section. Bubby's makes sauerkraut and pickles. Now, um, the pickles that we use are the big, you know, dill pickles. They also have bread and butter pickles, but that's a vinegar product. Now, you want the ones that are fermented. So the um, sauerkraut and the pickles are always in our fridge, and we have a couple of those a day. And anytime I see those things on sale, I'll buy four or five jars. And then we use the juice. Now, uh, I, I bet a lot of people will eat the pickles and just pour the liquid out. Now, there there are just gazillions of beneficial bacteria that live in the pickles and also in the juice. This is the liquid that they fermented in. And I've read some articles where fermented sauerkraut and pickles has trillions of bacteria in it. A lot of people are spending, you know, upwards of a hundred dollars a month in some cases to get uh, probiotics in capsules from the store. And a lot of people feed their children those and, and adults are eating them. And I don't know, uh, a lot of times it says keep refrigerated, but you buy it in the store and it's at room temperature. So I never really had a huge level of confidence that what it says on the outside of the package is actually in there. And those are, you know, you pay, I don't know, I haven't bought them in a while, but it could be like $50 to get one that has 50 billion um, bacteria count. Now, like I just mentioned, the sauerkraut and this liquid, this stuff is just packed with probiotics. So this is very good for you. A great idea to use the liquid. Now, when you get done, uh, if you buy some Bubby's pickles, which I highly recommend, you'll have probably, I don't know, maybe two and a half cups easy of the fermented liquid left over. Now, instead of tossing it down the drain, I mean, if you're really brave, just take a shot glass and have a shot of it uh, every day, probably towards dinner because it's loaded with garlic and a lot of spices. But what I do is I make a fermented salad dressing out of it. I'll take about a quarter cup of that fermented uh, liquid, the fermentation liquid from the pickle jar. And what I do is in a little bowl, I'll put in one tablespoon of Dijon mustard, a half of a shallot minced finely, a garlic clove minced finely, half teaspoon of kosher salt, a couple of twists of black pepper. I'll whisk that all together, then slowly drizzle in about a half a cup of sunflower oil and make sure that's the non-GMO variety. And this isn't a super thick dressing. If you want to add more fat to it, if you're doing some keto, you could add uh, sour cream or mayonnaise to it and make it cream-based, which I do all the time. But this is just a little light uh, dressing. And then what I do is I'll take a cabbage and I use a mandolin, or if you're good with your knife, um, you can shred up some, like a half of a cabbage finely, uh, maybe a half of one carrot. You don't want too much carrot in there. Shred the carrot. Um, shred the cabbage, and I like to take a red onion, and I'll put that on the mandolin as well. And even some broccoli, like I'll cut off the uh, stalks and just um, shred those things. My mandolin has, uh, you know, a slicing attachment and also a little um, shredding blades. 
and then I'll take cucumber and do the same thing. And I'll put a bunch of these vegetables together in a bowl. And then I'll pour, you know, three or four or five tablespoons of the fermented little salad dressing that I just described over it. And um, a couple of extra twists of black pepper because I love it. And I'll toss it around and just let it sit for about 30 minutes at room temperature. And those of you that follow, like I do, a lower-carb diet, it can be heavy at times, and you definitely need roughage in your in your daily diet. So, you know, the other day we had some tri-tip, and, of course, I treated it with my steakhouse blend. It was grilled, and then we had a... Um, what was that stuff? It was, I'm trying to remember, collard green gratin. So basically collard greens cooked down um, and then some uh, reduced heavy cream was added, a little bit of garlic and uh, some Romano cheese poured over the, the um, collard greens after they were drained well and it's baked in the oven. And that is lovely. So you had the steak, the collard green gratin, both rather heavy items, and then a big pile of this slaw that has all of this beneficial bacteria from the fermented pickle juice. And it made a really great meal. So that is um, a way to use up some of that extra liquid. Also today we opened our um, our German uh, sauerkraut crock and have a nice big batch of sauerkraut in there. It said only two weeks, so I had a bowl of it, but it needs to go back in there. Um, well, I, w- I didn't take it all out, but it needs to mellow in the crock another couple of weeks to get really nice. But um, these are some ideas to get uh, fermented products into your life and to be absorbing all of these beneficial bacteria, these probiotics, and do it in a way where you're not taking a pill. So it doesn't feel like you're taking medicine or supplements. You're actually eating it. Um, so that is a... a an idea and a strategy that I do here at my own house, and uh, I hope you have good luck with that. So give it a try. And while I have your ear, I wanted to mention with the holidays coming uh, over at HarvestEating.com, we have quite a few spices in stock, the Steakhouse Blend, Montana Steak, Texas Beef and Barbecue, the Northern Italian Grilled Chicken. I think we even have some Carolina Barbecue. So go over there and check those out. Any order that hits $45 ships for free. And I think that's it. Jack, thanks so much um, for your show, and thanks to all the TSP listeners out there. If I don't chat with you before Christmas, have a Merry Christmas. Take care. So next up, I have a question for retired law enforcement officer Dan Oman on avoiding having your kids kidnapped. This is one of those subjects we probably should talk more about, and it, it is deeper than the stranger danger conversation. It's one of those subjects we don't talk about as much as we should because who the hell wants to talk about it? The thought of having your child taken from you is, is I think, probably one of the most horrifying thoughts that a parent could have. So it's something we, we tend not to think about. But the reality is it does happen. It does happen. And the fact that something does occur means that we should prepare to try to prevent it when it's something bad, and this is something bad. We had a question on just this thing for Dan. Dan, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. Today I have a question from Matt in Maine in regards to women and children with self-defense in public. Matt asks, How could my wife prepare to defend our children and herself in a public setting, such as a retail store? Details. There's been a wave of child abduction warnings going around the internet. 
The MO changes slightly, but the stories are at retail stores like Walmart or a grocery store where a person will pretend to be friendly and admire the children and distract the single mother who is shopping with her children. A seemingly unrelated person would then move in and try to abduct one or more of the children. Matt wants to know if I recommend pepper spray or a concealed weapon or anything like that. Before getting to weapons, I think a really good place to start with this is basically keeping good situational awareness and then broadcasting that situational awareness. Kidnappers aren't typically going to just snatch at random. Like a burglar, they're pretty much going to be looking for a soft target, which would be parents who are more focused on their cell phone screens, talking on the phone, or just distracted in some other way. Don't be that person. Be alert scan your surroundings, don't have your cell phone out, be really attentive to your children, be engaged in conversation with them, don't let them wander, don't have your kids on screens either. I like to give my son an assignment, essentially his job is to push the cart, and I tell him where we're going and what we're shopping for and that kind of stuff, so it keeps him more engaged with the experience and he's focused on what we're doing and not just wandering aimlessly or getting bored and getting into stuff. Also, move quickly with authority and not like you're just aimlessly going down each aisle. Like in Matt's scenario, if a stranger approaches and attempts to make friendly conversation about the children or whatever, doesn't really matter, you can be polite, thank them, and then just explain that you're in a hurry and need to keep moving. All of these things make you appear to be a harder target, and a kidnapper will likely move on to a more vulnerable family in that situation. Next in the deterrence lineup is taking a surveillance detection route, or an SDR. This is something military, police, and other government employees are familiarized with at some point during their training, and here's how it would work. Basically, you're wife is shopping at Walmart with your kids and she's alert because you've had a discussion with her about situational awareness. She happens to notice the same guy has appeared in a few different aisles she's gone down. Her suspicions are aroused now. To confirm if this guy is a threat or not, your wife now would conduct the SDR. And she does this by going to the opposite end of the store. So if she was going down a food aisle, down the frozen chicken nugget aisle or whatever, She's now going to get out of there and go to the automotive section. And then if the guy happens to appear in the automotive section as well, your wife will then go to the electronic section and start looking at video games. And if he appears there again, it's pretty much no longer a coincidence that he's always where she's going. And so it's pretty much confirmed that he's going to be a threat. So this would be the time for her to go up front, call the police, and wait with the manager. In TSP episode 2215, Survival Secrets of the CIA with Jason Hansen, Jason talks about doing SDRs, and I highly recommend going and checking that episode out. Again, that's episode 2215. I think in many cases, a concealed firearm is a good option, but don't just give your wife a gun and call it good. If she's not already proficient with a firearm, she will need a lot of training. She needs to practice drawing from her purse or other concealed location and get confident with her shot placement. If someone is trying to snatch your kid, that means your kid is potentially in the line of fire and you have a... uh, violent, tumultuous, escalating situation, so she's definitely going to need some confidence in that situation. Pepper spray can be a really good option. If you're going to go that route, I recommend the pepper gel rather than the traditional liquid spray. The gel has better accuracy, it sticks to the target, and it doesn't foul up the air for all of those that are not sprayed. For those of you who have been anywhere near pepper spray as it's been sprayed, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
perhaps even more important than having a defensive weapon is to mentally and physically train your children to respond to a kidnapping situation. How you do that and how far you take that training is going to depend on how old your child is and their mental maturity. The thing to keep in your mind is, if someone is able to take off with your child, there is a very high likelihood that your child is going to be killed. So let that be your motivation to get them properly trained. A big part of training should be conditioning your children to thinking about scratching and gouging eyeballs. If your child can't quite reach eyeballs, there might be some other balls that they would be able to reach and cause some major discomfort to the kidnapper. For moms, driving your car key into that soft spot just above the place where your clavicle bones almost meet at the sternum, that could be quite effective as well. That skin is very thin there and you can puncture right in there and go right into the throat. If your children or wife respond with ew or gross at the thought of driving their finger into an attacker's eyes, then they aren't quite ready to fight for their lives yet. They need to know to bite scratch, scream, flail, and make it as hard as possible for someone to take off of them. Try to make the training fun somehow and not a disturbing experience for the children, but it's important for them to understand the danger of the situation. And again, this is at an age-appropriate level, so it's going to just be different based on your child. I hope all this has been helpful in some way and has given you a few things to think about. Again, go check out TSP episode 2215. And now I have an announcement for mead makers out there. I have raw, practically organic honey on sale right now on my website, grassfedhomestead.com. I had a huge honey harvest this fall from the hives that I keep on my property. The honey is what I like to think of as permaculture honey. It is knapweed honey. Knapweed is considered a really noxious weed, and it destroys pastures. It is a problem in the eyes of many, but in permaculture, the problem is the solution. In this case, knapweed mixed with bees results in a really high-quality, premium specialty honey. I have gift sets with fancy bottles for the holidays on sale, as well as three-pound containers for small-batch mead makers. I'm shipping it anywhere in the U.S., and again, that's grassfedhomestead.com, and you can just follow the tab over to the store where you can check out the different options for the nappy honey. On top of the holiday discount I'm running, if you use coupon code TSP2018, you'll receive an additional 10% off. So I appreciate you guys helping me out with that. Like I said, um, very important topic and something we need to prepare ourselves to prevent. And I think, you know, on top of all Dan's words there, I would add not just our own kids, but watching for others You know, this is one of those things, like, there's things that you see happen that aren't exactly right, but it's not your business. If you think somebody's grabbing a kid, I don't think I need to tell anybody in this audience this, but you've got to take action. Right? You've got to take it, including if it looks like, I, I'm not sure if that's his dad or whatever. Hey, you know what? If it's my kid and someone says, hey, what are you doing? And, and, and I understand that because, let's say, a kid's throwing a tantrum or something and fighting me, what's going on? I'll be happy to prove I'm the kid's dad. And not, maybe not everybody would, but I, I'll, I'll take that risk before, you know, I, I, I think, well, I just watched a kid jerked out of a, a, a department store or something like that. On to uh, better things and hopefully not a complete disaster in my attempt Here to parody Shakespeare in just a second. And I've been thinking about this as I've been putting the show together today. Uh, to swell or not to swell. This comes from Chris. Chris says, Dear Jack, I think I understand swell function pretty well. I've read Ben Falk's book, etc., but I'm not sure where swells would be beneficial and where they would not. 
can you help? So the question is to swell or not to swell. So here we go. Hopefully I don't crash and burn. To swell or not to swell, that is the question. Whether it is nobler to suffer runoff and soil erosion, the slings and arrows of outrageous fertility loss, or to take up excavators against a sea of troubles and by contour oppose them so on lines they lie no more a loss but rather a forest shall rise in the end hey that wasn't half bad was it i swear i i did that on the fly i don't think i could do that again anyway um let's talk about swales here for a minute and let's for people that maybe are new to the show and are like what the hell is he talking about there Because uh, if you know Swells, I think that was pretty good. I'll have to listen to that and see if it's as good as I think it was. It was better than my karaoke at the workshop, I promise you that. Anyway, so a swale is a ditch on contour. Now, a swale can actually be slightly off contour. We can move water with a swale at, say, a one-degree pitch. So we have a one, you know, one-foot drop over a hundred feet would be a one percent. That moves water very, very slowly, but it does move water. Where if we go completely on contour, which means the ditch is level, it spreads, slows, and soaks water. And that's what we're talking about today. A ditch on contour. So if you look at a contour map and you see a line on that map that says that elevation is 850 feet. That line is a contour line, and if you stayed on that line and walked it, you'd walk a completely level path across a slope, right? across the edge of a slope. Right? So, we take an excavator or some type of piece of equipment, maybe a bulldozer, etc., and we scratch a line, a contour line, into the ground, and we make a ditch. And there's a lot that goes into this ditch. It is not just a ditch. Uh, we take the soil that comes out of the ditch, we put it on the downhill side of the ditch, and we this is the most important thing. We do not compact the mound. It is loose, and then it rains, and the ditch fills with water, and because it's on contour, the water spreads out evenly from one end of the ditch to the other until the ditch fills. And at time that the ditch becomes full and beyond its capacity, if we've done our job right, somewhere in that mound we've left an opening and we have a level sill spillway. So instead of the water coming out with a lot of pressure and force and creating erosion, the water sheets. We might have in a big swale a, a 3 to 12 meter opening or multiple openings in different various spots depending on where we want to discharge the water. The water will discharge and go down to another level or go off the property because we've held it as long as we can. So that's what I mean by a swale. And I could do a whole show called What is a Swale? Not in Shakespeare, hopefully. And uh, we could probably run into hours just talking about what swales are and when we use them. But I want to try to give you some basic understanding of what we can do with swales and where we would use them. The first thing... Uh, that I would say to you, though, Chris, is if you are not sure, don't. A swale, now we're not talking about a little one we dig with a shovel and make a garden on contour. We're not talking about a little terrace that has a swale mound on the other side of it that's really a footpath. 
We're talking about getting a piece of equipment, a bobcat, a bulldozer, an excavator, a backhoe, and putting a significant structure in the ground. That's what I'm talking about today. They are not real easy to just pretend you didn't want to do it and fill them back in and go away. It, it, it takes more effort to put it back uh, than it did to take it out, and it'll never quite be the same ever again. Uh, it is a decision that's been made that, in general, should be, it, well, it doesn't have to be, but it should be looked at as a permanent alteration of the landform. So, therefore, we don't do that unless we know why we're doing that and that we should be doing that on our land that we're working on. Because what I found with swales is because it actually is a very easy thing to understand. I go rent a laser level, put flags in a line on where it's level, and dig a ditch. And then I'll have a swale, just like Jeff Lawton did on YouTube. And he greened the desert with it, so it should work really good in Missouri. Um, because it's that easy to do, everybody wants to do it. So let's talk about what a swale is for. In essence, a swale is a tree growing system. It is for growing trees and bushes and vines. As I said in my Shakespeare, a forest shall rise in the end. That's what we're trying to create here. Those other things we do with swales, but we don't build swales to plant vegetables. That's not what they're for. We can use contours in our gardens, and we should, But these, again, these are footpaths. These are things we can do with a shovel and a wheelbarrow, not with a 16-ton excavator. All right? So we want, if we're not talking about trees, then we really probably shouldn't be doing swales. Probably. Uh, if you know why you should otherwise, then go ahead and do it. You should, then you don't need to rely on me to say, you know, from a generic answer like this, what you should do with it. But here's the, the five main things that swales can do for you. And this helps you decide whether they make sense for you or not. One is erosion control. Uh, in many landforms, um, especially with significant elevation changes and significant you know, uh, texture to the landscape, you have points where you get ravines and things like that, and you get a lot of erosion. And what happens is you have spurs and ridges, and you think of that by looking at your hand and make a fist and kind of look down your, uh, your, your hand, like, down at, like you're going to punch yourself in the face, and those area, and imagine that's a hillside. And there's a contour line would go, let's say where you're, if you have a wedding ring on, your wedding ring straight across, that's a contour line across your other fingers. But in between them, you have those seams in between your fingers. You know, those, those, are, uh, those are valleys. And so when water, if water was running down your hand, it's going to concentrate in those valleys and come off of your spurs. Your spurs are like center of your fingers. Now, if we go in and we put a groove in your hand, And we track back up those uh, valleys so that we stay on contour. We spread the water from the valley out to the spurs and ridge lines. And we also dissipate how fast that water is coming downhill. And we reduce erosion. And there's other landforms uh, and situations where you reduce erosion with a swale. So what you would then look at a landform and make a decision. Do I have an erosion issue? And just because the answer is yes doesn't mean the answer is swale. The answer might be gabions. I mean, there's a lot of different things we can do. But you would say, okay, 
can swales here reduce erosion? And it might not be serious erosion, or it might actually be significant erosion, but you don't see it because it's fairly uniform, but you're losing a lot of your fertility and you're using a lot of, losing a lot of topsoil in discharge out and away down the road. Number one export the United States has, we don't get any money for. It's topsoil. We export more topsoil into the oceans than we export of any other single commodity. And a lot of that can be stopped with swale, so erosion control. Next is water harvesting. If you live in a climate where you do not need to irrigate trees at all to get them through a season, then since trees are grown in swales and swales are tree-growing systems, and you have sufficient water so that trees will grow throughout the year with no irrigation, unless you have another reason, and you might, but unless you do, you probably don't need swales. There's probably no good reason for you to do swales from a water harvesting standpoint for the trees. Because there's another way we harvest water with swales, and that is to increase catchment to fill ponds and dams. That's another function that swales serve. So if we have a hillside, and let's say it's not a big, where they say hill, people think big, giant hill. But let's just say it's a gentle slope. And instead of putting a pond at the bottom of the hill like everybody wants to do, we think a little bit more and we say, you know, it'd be great if that pond was halfway up the hill. Because then we can use gravity to use the water in that pond for other things. Like, it could even overflow from that pond down to a lower pond. And that would be really cool. We could even maybe harvest some energy from it while it does that. Wouldn't that be awesome? But then you look at the side of that hill and you realize that, you know, from the top of the hill down to where that pond is, there's not a lot of catchment. So the pond isn't going to stay full enough from the amount of rain you get. Well, if we then pull a swale on contour from where that pond is along that slope, water two, three hundred yards away is now spread out in that swale and eventually ends up in that pond. And when the pond exceeds capacity, it will backfill up the swale and then do all the other wonderful things like infiltrating water and preventing erosion that swales do. And eventually it will discharge. And now instead of having that pond maybe discharge when it's too full right where the pond is, we could have a discharge 50, 100 yards away. In fact, in theory, there's no reason it couldn't discharge a mile away. If we had control of the land and sufficient uh, landform to be able to build that type of a thing, so we can extend catchments and fill and manage ponds and dams with swales. So one of the decisions that we look to swales, are we planning on putting in ponds and dams? And then we have capturing and spreading fertility. So if you have a piece of property that's relatively flat one, and you're running livestock, one of the challenges you have in a forest system is to spread the, the, the fertility out throughout that system without using energy. So, for instance, here we run ducks on the property. Well, the ducks love to go poop in the swales, but they poop all over the place. But when rain comes, a lot of that fertility ends up in the swales, and then with no energy and no effort on our part, we have over uh, 1,200 feet of swale in our food forest, and that fertility is spread across 1,200 linear feet of swale, and then it's distributed that way, and it begins traveling through the landform itself as the swales are full and as it weeps into that non-compacted mound, and it distributes that fertility. So we not only capture, but we spread fertility with swales. 
When it rains and the swells are full, the ducks all run in there like a little canal, and they poop in there. Ducks hit water, eject button happens almost immediately. It's just what they do. So all of that's captured and spread out and not lost. So that's another thing. So do we, do we have a need or a way that we can beneficially capture and spread fertility? And then the other thing that swells do for us is create patterns. So when people look at some of my stuff, they say, well, wow, that's a really interesting pattern. How did you come up with that? And I'm like, I didn't come up with it. It's a lot. It's swales are a form of earth sculpting. You don't create a contour. You find a contour and excavate along it. So all landforms have natural patterns. When we go in and mark out swales, we expose that pattern. We make it evident, and then we can use it as a key. And I'm not talking about key line here, but as a key design element in the pattern of our system. It gives us this pattern that we then build our entire forest or other systems on. In fact, many times it makes a lot of sense then to go in and pretend you were going to put swales in and mark out contour lines. Then you can see the patterns in your landscapes, and you might decide, well, I don't really need a swale here, but look, at, isn't that interesting? That contour line runs all the way across the property, and I need a way to get all the way across the property. So I'm going to put my little you know, service road or footpath on that contour line. And when I, when I do that, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to excavate just a little bit to make a nice flat path, maybe six feet wide. Well, and I might as well put that dirt on the downhill side. And then effectively I have kind of a swale terrace hybrid, but it really isn't a swale because I haven't gone down enough. I haven't made enough catchment. I've just made a nice flat pathway, but I have created an erosion-resistant path. And I am going to get some amount of water harvesting and fertility capture. So I probably want to plant along that now path or road. So that could either be a swale that creates a pattern or it could be using the same way we would create a swale to reveal a pattern. And, and all of this has to be taken into consideration when you decide whether you want to swale or not. But let me explain something to you. Let's say that I lived in central Florida. I get plenty of rainfall. I have sandy soil. Uh, trees there can get roots down, you know, as, if you have a 20-foot tree in Florida, if it has the capacity to grow 20-foot roots, it probably has 20-foot roots. And there, it, it, what it will do, it will, in a lot of places in Florida, like where I grew up as a kid, my grandfather had a well. When they put the well in, they went 8 feet and found the water table. And the guy went 12 feet and said, you'll never have to worry about it drying on you, even in the worst of our droughts. Well, if a tree can reach down to the water table... Assuming the water table's not too high, that's a different issue. And now we can use swales in a big mound to actually lift trees higher up from the water table. And that would be a professional decision. You really need to know what you're doing when you do that. But that would be another example of using a swale. But in that situation, I don't need a swale for water collection. And people ask about mosquitoes and swales. If you design swales right and use them properly, mosquitoes are not an issue. Because they don't hold water long enough for mosquitoes to breed them. Because they're not to hold water. They capture and infiltrate, means put it into the ground. But in some situations, swales could become stagnant canals. Well, you don't want to put a swale there, for, for example. In a lot of places in Florida, just as an example, I'm familiar with the landscape there, you would create that, so that would not be a place. However, just because it's sandy and relatively flat doesn't mean you wouldn't do it, or just because Florida doesn't mean you would do it. Again, what if we're back to putting in ponds? We're in a very deep, very large pond, and we don't have sufficient catchment. 
then we might want to put that swale in as a canal. We could actually go deep with that, that, that catchment swale so that if it stayed full, fish could be swimming up and down it, and it's not a mosquito problem then. And again, this would be a time where you probably want to get some help from some professional excavators and engineers in making larger scale decisions like this. But all of this needs to be taken into account when you put swales in. Never put them in just because you saw somebody do it on TV or YouTube. Never do it just because Jeff Lawton or Jack Spirico did it. Know why you're using it and take those five key points into consideration. Am I using this for erosion control, water harvesting, capturing and spreading fertility, filling ponds and dams, and creating patterns? And is it the best tool to do those things in this landscape, in this climate, with this rainfall, with this soil type? Because if you say, well, you know, I do have erosion issues, but paths on contour and some gabions will fix that for less money and not create the issues that swells will create and work better here, then that would be the decision to make. If, yeah, they reveal patterns, but I see the patterns and maybe just laying rocks on contour to create paths that then create the landform skeleton that I'm going to design around and I don't really need additional water infiltration or it doesn't really make sense here, then don't swale. And this logical discussion is how you determine whether or not they're right for you and what you're doing because they're not right for every situation. In fact, I could have two, I could have a piece of property that Swales are both right and wrong for it, depending on who owns it and what they want to do with it, what their goals are for it, and how much maintenance they want to you know do with it. If they want to keep it mostly in pasture, I might do swales and then pasture the inner swale, the area between swales, and I might not. It all depends. It all depends. Okay, hope that was uh, fun for you, and hope you enjoyed my little Shakespeare riff there. We've come to the end of another show. And I want to remind you, if you want to support us, one real easy way to do that is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You spell it just like it sounds, tspaz.com, tspaz.com. That is where all my reviews on Amazon are. You can see the item of the day. But whenever you start there, you help us no matter what you eventually buy. Today's item of the day is a new one for you, but I've actually talked about it before. I did a show on the Prepper Kitchen And I mentioned it in that it was a couple years ago, but I never actually ran it itself as an item of the day. And I got to give a shout out to Paul Wheaton because he's the guy I learned about this thing from, and I probably never would have cared enough about spatulas, yeah, to to have ever found this thing. It's made by a company called Dexter Russell, and it's a little spatula, it's about four inches uh, in, in length of the metal component of it, uh, with a walnut handle brass rivet. It's very well made for a spatula. It's about sixteen bucks. Um, But there's a lot of well-made spatulas from just a construction standpoint. It's a design issue. So, and I thought Paul was kind of full of crap when he first started telling me this. But what he explained to me is that when you have a spatula, most spatulas either kind of have an angle at the end of them, like a almost like a knife angle grind to the, the end of them, or they're rounded at the end in some way. And what that does when you're cooking on cast iron is what he was worried about, but it's the same thing when you're cooking on carbon steel, which is what I cook mostly on now, that when you're scraping that pan or trying to turn something or whatever, it bites into the metal and it scratches it. 
And it's just not as pleasing to use either. But what you're doing when you're laying down seasoning on carbon or, 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 or cast iron is you're creating a polymer. That's what you're actually doing. The fats and oils are polymerizing over time, and that's why they get to a point where they're, they're more stick-free than Teflon. I mean, an egg will just slide around you. Sometimes the problem is egg don't stick enough, it's hard to pick it up with a spatula and turn it. Well, if you're constantly digging into that, that's not going to happen. And again, it's not just it's not really that great uh, uh, experience as a cook either to have your spatula grabbing the steel. And son of a gun, if when I use my other spatulas other than this one, if they don't all kind of grab, so I don't like them anymore, I don't use them, then you need the exact opposite at your corners. You want the corners to be rounded. Because the corners, if they're if you have a flat end of your spatula and a 90-degree angle corner, as you come around the edge of your, your pan, since it's round, it'll gouge and dig in the sides, which you also don't want. So you want a rounded corner but a flat end. And you want it lightweight and well-built. Okay, so I bought this thing like six years ago when Paul switched me on to it. I still have it. It's still just awesome. The only vulnerable component of it is the wood handle, which at least it won't melt like plastic if you leave it lay against the pan for a little while. Um, but wood, there's two ways that wood can be. One is it's got good amount of oil in it, and then wood lasts longer than a human lifetime. And the other way is dried out, and then it lasts a fraction thereof. So all you got to do with wooden handled uh, stuff is keep it clean and put some oil on it once in a while. And I oil my cutting boards, all my cutting boards with mineral oil. So whenever I'm oiling a cutting board, I'll just grab you know any wooden handled stuff in my my drawers, uh, kitchen tools that have a wood unfinished handle, and I'll just rub them with a little mineral oil. That's all I've done for six years. The damn thing looks brand new. Um, so sixteen bucks, it's a lifetime investment, and. I know it seems stupid, like, can a spatula actually make your life better? If you cook on metal cookware, yes, it can. And if you get this thing, you'll be like, I can't believe that I have a favorite spatula. I feel stupid when I say it, guys. But if you give this thing a try, it looks great, it works great. And shout out to Paul for switching me on to it so many years ago. The Dexter Russell spatula, today's TSP T-Spaz item of the day, and you can always support us. When you buy the item of the day or any of the items we've reviewed or do any shopping through T-SPAS whatsoever, you can also join the Member Support Brigade. I would like you to. That's how, we, that's how we really pay the bills around here. Without the MSB, I'd have to go get a job or start a different business. That's all there is to it. That is the way that I can do this show full-time. It's the only way. And you get your money back in spades if you use the discounts. And we're coming to the end of the year, so I will go on a major blitzkrieg this winter to get you new additional vendors. Any guys you'd like me to go after for you, let me know. I'll take a shot at them for you. Um, but if you're going to join the MSB, go sign up for the email list. And I'm going to go one more day and what I'm doing, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but Monday will be the last day that there's something special in the daily email about MSB, and it's really a good deal. And Monday, it's going to go away like a fart in the wind, and I don't know when it's going to come back. So if you're not on my daily email list, you have this weekend to get subscribed, and then you will get a special Join the Membership Brigade opportunity if you're on that email list, and I will not tell you any other way. So... Get on the mail list. I send one email a day now. It's got everything that's new on the blog and other stuff, and that's all it ever is and all it ever probably will be from this point on. Right. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. We are wrapping up 
a week of Luca Stricanoli. Uh, and this song is called The Future. And uh, he does this with a lap-tap technique. So instead of one of his, like, you know, three-fret guitars where he's playing a six-string, a seven-string, and a bass at the same time while doing percussion and playing a harmonica, yeah, um, he's just got a plain, for him anyway, normal six-string guitar with a little percussion pad on it so that he doesn't beat up the pretty face of the guitar. And he plays this amazing song with it sitting in his lap, kind of like, if you remember Jeff Healy, the Jeff Healy band back in the 80s, he was in the movie, what movie? Roadhouse. So he played his guitar in his lap, but he played it more conventionally. This is more of like, I, I don't even understand how people make music come out of a guitar doing what this guy's doing. I don't get it. Um, but it's pretty amazing. It's a great song. Um, we didn't get it selected by John Adam for this week of, of Luca's music, but I shared a song today um, on Facebook that Luca did, and it is a acoustic rendering of the theme from Braveheart. Uh, if you're not on my Facebook and didn't see it, go look it up on YouTube. Luca Stricanoli, Braveheart. Wow. I mean, you you almost emotionally bleed listening to that music. I may work that in at some point on an Audible and play it on the air for you, but go check it out. Anyway, we've ended the week again. We've talked about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. The song is called The Future. As you listen to it, plan your weekend, think about what you'll be doing with the time you have off, if you do have it off, that is. Think about your future. Because remember, it's what you do with your future that determines where it leads you. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. <laughs>